John 17, this is Jesus praying. Some of the disciples are there. They're listening in, right? John 17. Starting at verse uh, 14. I've given them thy word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as, that, uh, even as I am not of the world. I don't ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. As thou didst send me into the world, I've also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. It's good to be, it's good to live a sanctified, holy, sanctified life, right? <laughs> Let me keep going. I'm going to go back to my old Pentecostal holiness roots. I ain't going to do that. 1720. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. Talk about the 12 disciples. But for those also who will believe in me through their word. You catch that? So he says, I don't ask on behalf just of these alone. Talking about the 12 disciples. But then he starts praying for us. But for those also who believe in me through their word. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's praying for you now. Mm -hmm. What's he praying Verse 21, that they may all be one. Sounds like a good name for a conference. <laughs> that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst sent me. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfected in what? Unity. That the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love them, didst love them even as thou didst love me. Powerful stuff, right? Now, the uh, last scripture we'll read together. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. Talking about the great heroes of faith, right? And I, I was reading through this years ago, and I came across this last little part at the end of Hebrews 11 that I still have not gotten over these three or four verses of scripture, right? Hebrews 11, starting at verse 36. Talking about the great heroes of faith. New American Standard says, it's like th says it like this. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, just also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They, were, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandered in mountains and deserts and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, there's a whole company of people that have sacrificed and everything that they, <coughs> that they were promised they stepped into it just a little bit, but we are to take up their unfinished business. We all have unfinished business with this whole answer to Jesus' prayer. And the Father is going to answer his prayer. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. God, we give you glory. We give you honor. We give you praise. Lord, we magnify your holy name. This evening, God, we thank you for your love for New York. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for... The people who have sacrificed in this nation, in the place of prayer, in the place of activism, and everything that these amazing prophetic people that have been raised up out of New York 
We thank you for what you've started with them. But, God, we ask you to help us move this chain forward. So, Holy Spirit, come. Do what you do best and what you love most to do. Make us love Jesus more than we did before we first got started. And we thank you for unfinished business tonight. Because your son said, greater works than these are we going to do because he's gone to the Father. Help us as a church be that united force that heals the divide in this nation so that generations even yet to be created can praise you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, I have a little bit of a video clip I want to play for y'all. It's one of my favorite, probably one of your favorite speeches too, right? Let's go ahead and cue that up, guys. There we go. Check this out. Powerful, powerful speech, right? Right, so um, love that speech because if you ever get a chance to study the history of it, the amazing thing you find out is that that phrase, I have a dream, that was not written down in his notes. It wasn't written down in his notes. Actually, it was a phrase that was birthed in a prayer meeting. I'll go ahead and tell the story about that right now. So that, that phrase was actually birthed in a prayer meeting. There was a church that was burned down by the Ku Klux Klan. And uh, a little little girl named Prathia Hall was in that prayer meeting. You heard her name was Prathia, right? Right. Her she was literally named after prayer. Wow. She had an amazing prayer life on her. Her father was this amazing Baptist preacher. And uh, she was in the middle of this rubble with along about 15, 20 other people. Dr. King was one of the people there at this church that was burnt down by the Klan. And all of a sudden, Prathia Hall gets up, and she, she begins to pray, and she says, I have a dream, and she gets into this rhythmic cadence. And Dr. King heard that, and he, get, he got gripped by that. And according to the accounts that I read, he started using that phrase in many of the prayer times that he had, and also he incorporated, incorporated in some of his sermons. The first national sermon where he, national speech where he used that was in Detroit, and then a month later, uh, Mahalia Jackson who was with him there in Detroit. He's there in, in, at the mall in Washington, and his speechwriter said, hey, you know what, just stay with our talking points. Don't get into that I have a dream thing. Just, just leave that out. Just read, read your speech, do your deal, and that's all we need to do. So he gets through with the speech, and you, you have to turn it up pretty loud to hear it, but you hear Mahalia Jackson in the background say, Martin, tell him about the dream." And then he kicks into, I have a dream. Man, I wish I could talk like him, right? <laughs> that was birthed out of a prayer meeting. Birthed out of a prayer meeting. And I love the part where he says, you know, uh, uh, that the sons of former slaves, listen, I'm one of those sons of former slaves, <laughs> right? And this pot that you see up here, some of y'all have heard the story, some of you hadn't. This pot has been in my family 
passed down. This pot is about 200 years old. It was used by the slaves of my family. They used it for cooking. They used it for washing clothes. But secretly, it was used for prayer. I'll tell you why and how in just a little bit. It's like this memorial stone that's been passed down in my family from generation to generation to generation. And uh, it's just this reminder in our family of the the importance of prayer and basically how the same God who ended slavery, (laughs) he'll part whatever circumstances for us too. It's been like this reminder for us of that. So passed down all these all these generations but the interesting thing for me and, and for our talk tonight is that it came it comes from it, blah, blah, blah. it comes from is that about the best way to say it I know I'm around uh, you know uh, New Yorker so I gotta speak right <laughs> I gotta speak the King's English up here it comes from Lake Providence Louisiana Lake Providence Louisiana and uh, I don't think that's a mistake that it comes from Lake Providence you know uh, Providence, according to Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary, it says that providence is the continuous activity of God by which he preserves, he preserves and governs. It's the way God looks over seemingly insignificant things and apparent accidents. So in other words, it's not a mistake the family you're born into, <laughs> the color of your skin, the neighborhood that you grow up in. None of that is a mistake. Turn to your neighbor and say, nothing just happens. <laughs> yeah, nothing just happens. I'm pretty sure, you know, honestly, people don't just happen either. It's all looked over by Providence. It's not a mistake. This pot comes from late Providence. And probably the best understanding of Providence in the New Testament is in Ephesians 2 and 10, where it says that we are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus, and we're walking out the works that he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Right? That word workmanship is a powerful word. It's, it's the word poema. Everybody say poema. 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 You hear the word poem in there, right? So think about it. You're God's poem. <laughs> You're his song, right? But even greater than that, the word poema was actually the word that was used to describe someone who was a skillful tailor, a fabric maker. In other words, God has his tailor-made plan for all of our lives. It's connected to the families we're born into, the regions we live in. In other words, he, he connects all these amazing dots together. You ever see somebody crocheting or weaving something together? Like, like one side of it looks like a, just a matted mess of stuff like with knots and string everywhere, right? And every now and then the poema or that person who's working on it, they'll turn it around so you can see the amazing things they're working on. Makes a whole lot more sense when they turn it around for you. I believe that's where we are right now. God is turning some things around so we can see what he's been working on all along. And that's kind of like what's been happening with Matt and I in this story. So this is not, I want you, when you hear this story tonight, this, I want you to understand this is not just our story. This is all of our stories. We're a sign of what God is doing with all of us right now and connecting us to his unfinished business with all the people who have gone on before us. And so the way you kick into this whole thing about understanding what providence is doing is through prayer, right? I like what the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, once said. He said, when I pray, the coincidences happen, but when I don't, they don't. In other words, when I pray, the coincidences happen, but when I stop praying, the coincidences stop. And so you start praying, and all of a sudden, God starts pulling, the, pulling, pulling back the curtain to let you see what's happening. And all these stream of uncoincidental coincidences begin to happen. Literally, that's what you're going to see in this crazy story I'm about to tell you tonight. And so I don't know how else to get into it just by telling you my story. So the way I, I, I got, into doing, got, got started in doing what I'm doing now, back in, like, I want to say 1998, 
I've been an intercessor. I've been praying for revival. Honestly, I probably was the recipient of these folks' heart for intercession in my own family. I didn't realize it. I love being in prayer meetings. I, that was the place I love to be. I, I still believe the best way to do church attendance today is the way they did in the book of Acts. Whoever was in the upper room, that's what got counted on being there, right? <laughs> so, um, but anyway, I love being in prayer meetings. I love learning about prayer. And I grabbed this book by Bill Bright years ago. He's over Campus Crusade for Christ. How many of y'all connected, connected to Campus Oh, cool. Good. We got some Campus Crusaders here, right? But uh, anyway, read this book by Bill Bright, and he says in there, God, give me 2 million people who will do a 40-day fast for revival in America. And I said, me, God, <laughs> pick me. You know, make me an answer to this man's prayer. So I start a 40-day fast. But the first day of my fast, somebody spray-painted my neighbor's car in my neighborhood. I said, God, what do you want me to do? He said, start prayer walking your neighborhood. So I start prayer walking my neighborhood. And while I'm prayer walking the neighborhood, uh, I got a chance to meet people who, uh, you know, never met before, people of different religions. I got a chance to share the gospel with them. A couple of them got saved. <laughs> I got to pray for people who were sick. I saw people healed. But even greater than that, God broke my heart for revival in America. And all I, 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 all I could do is just walk and weep and pray for revival. I get up early in the morning and, 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 and go late at night because I would just weep so hard as I was prayer walking my neighborhood, right? Because um, we always had that one little nosy neighbor, too, right? Uh, remember that show, Bewitched, where they had the lady uh, Gladys Kravitz in it, right? The little nosy neighbor. She's always looking at the window at me with, and on the phone at the same time. <laughs> there he go again. I don't know what his wife is doing to him. Yeah, he's still crying. We'll keep praying. You know, she's looking at me like that. But I'm praying for her, though. Anyway. But anyway, so time goes on, and the last day of my fast just wind up coinciding with this event in Washington, D.C. called The Call. And there was this guy, Lou Ingalls. I had never heard him before. We didn't know any of the speakers. Some guy named Jason Upton. Nobody knew who he was. Everybody shows up. So it's like 400,000 people show up for this prayer and fasting gathering, 12 hours fasting. It was the most, one of the most powerful dynamic things I'd ever been a part of. Maybe because it's the last day of my fast, I don't know. But I'm telling you, it was catalytic to everything that's going on in my life at that time. So that prayer meeting's over, and then I hear about another prayer gathering about three or four months later where some of the same people from that event, they were actually, they were actually doing this prayer gathering in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I'd never been there before. But now I'm in this place where i got to find my tribe. I'm hungry. Who, who, who else has this heart for this nation like this and wants to see authentic revival? Because by this time, I learned that revival is not, you know, when you put a sign up and you put somebody's name up and say, hey, Brother Wuthering or Reverend Flip Flop is coming to town. <laughs> That's not revival. Revival is when God comes to town. Amen. And you don't have to announce it. <laughs> when he shows up, everybody comes to be a part of what's happening there. Anyway, so... I was praying and crying out for something like that, and I saw these people were too. But little did I know that Mr. Poema was about to connect me to some more people and into some more unfinished business. So I get there at this gathering, and all these uncoincidental coincidences, this is when they actually start happening in my life. I'm there at this prayer gathering, and uh, this little lady who I didn't know named Cindy Jacobs is there. And uh, it's about 500 folks there. She calls up this young man named Dutch Sheets at the time. And uh, calls up another young man named Billy Olsen, who was a lot younger than Dutch. He was like a mentor to Dutch. 
mentor of the Duchess. But anyway, so she's praying and prophesying over them. And then she, she begins to pray and prophesy over them that they would go to Williamsburg, Virginia and do prayer and revival meetings. And she stops. She says, hold up. There's something to this because Dutch, his real name is William. Of course, Billy, his real name is William. And here we are talking about Williamsburg. Does anybody know what William means? So I'm there. I'm in the back. And I just kind of blurted out and said, it means noble spirit, resolute protector. I'm a William. I know what my name means, right? She said, that's right. Who said that? And I was like, Ugh. <laughs> So I kind of poked my hand up. She said, you in the back. You're a William too, aren't you? She's a prophet lady. So, yeah, she got me. So, yes. She said, well, get down here. Then she said, it's too white up here anyway. Come on down. <laughs> but when the three of us get connected together, William Dutch sees William Bilios and me, William Ford III, the spirit of God falls on all three of us. We begin weeping over each other. And Dutch sees, looks at me with tears in his eyes, and he says, you know, if we do this prayer gathering there, you have to come with us. you got to come with us to Williamsburg. And I'm thinking, okay, this will be like church camp. You know, we'll exchange phone numbers and never hear from each other again. That's what I'm thinking. But little do I know, Mr. Poema, weaving something together. So then Dutch shared this powerful message. I will share a snippet of it with you in just a little bit. Shares this powerful message with us about agreement in prayer, synergy, the synergy that's created from that. And so after that message, I shared with him the history and the story of this kettle and my family. You know, we were like, oh, my God, this, this is a real deal. Maybe we should really consider this whole Williamsburg thing. So we stayed in contact with each other for, you know, a couple of months afterwards. And he said, you know, Will, we've been talking, I've been talking to my team, and not only do they want to go to Williamsburg, we feel like we're supposed to go to all the places where historic revivals broke out in America and uh, go throughout New England and the Northeast. Actually, this, this place was one of those places that we came to, New York. He said, uh, he started singing all the names of the cities that we want to go to. So here's where it started getting weird. He sends me all the names of the cities that he wanted to go to, and without realizing it, he, when he sent me the names of the cities, all of them, except for two, were names of streets in my neighborhood that I've been prayer walking. For example, we went to Jamestown, the original settlement. Jamestown Court was across the street from me. We went to Princeton University. Princeton Street was two streets behind me. Went to Han Hanover, New Hampshire. Hanover Street was next to Princeton Street. Went to Dartmouth University. Dartmouth Court was four streets down. Went to New Haven, Connecticut. New Haven Court was one street down on the left. Went to Gettysburg. Gettysburg Street was around the corner from me. Literally, I could go on. And at that time, also on the list was the Chesapeake Bay Area. They used to call the whole area the Chesapeake. And at that time, I lived on Chesapeake Street. In Euless, Texas, by, by the way. <laughs> It's not like it was, I was living in the Northeast. So why would God do that with a white man named Dutch and a black man named William III? Was it turns out that the Dutch, that people group, that nation, the Dutch were the first ones to send slave ships into this nation in 1619. 400 years ago this year. This is the 400-year anniversary of slavery. Right? And then William III, that king from England, was the first king from England to send slave ships into America. What God is doing... He's basically saying, I want to use your relationship to show that I want to reverse the effects of yesterday's pain. He's turning the tapestry around a little bit for us to see what he's working on. It's Acts 17, 26, 27, where he says, God has made for one blood many nations and determined the bounds of our habitations time beforehand that we may seek after God and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. In other words, God knows 
the families we're going to be born in, the places we're going to inhabit, the neighborhoods we're going to live in, so that we could seek after God together. And so the message that connected Dutch and I together was this powerful message they had on synergy. Synergy, we know, is when you take two separate things and when you connect them together, they don't create an additional power but a multiplicity of power, right? Scientists say if you take two horses and if you put them together, if they're pulling the same load, it creates so much exponential power just in the natural that it's as if a third invisible horse has been added. That's in the natural. So when we work together, there's a synergy that takes place, right? That's in the natural, but think about it. Spiritually, one could put a thousand to flight, and two could put what? Ten thousand. That's synergy. So thinking about it, we start getting all this agreement in prayer between red, yellow, black, and white. We start getting agreement in prayer between old and young, male and female. We can see this synergistic exponential release in the power of prayer like we've never seen before. Right? It's Psalm 133, right? Psalm 133 says what? How good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in what? Unity. It's like the anointing oil flowing from Aaron's head and onto his beard and onto his robe. Then the Bible says, for there, everybody say there, there. the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. In other words, God's looking for a place called there. It's the place where we come together and work in the place of prayer and drop our agendas and come together and believe. Right? And why do I say the work is prayer? Because Psalm 133, remember, Aaron was a high priest. So we like to use Psalm 133 a lot of times just to talk about us working together, but primarily that work is intercession. That work is prayer because Aaron was a high priest. That's important. But Dutch said something else that was so powerful, and this is the phrase that changed my life. He said this. Not only can you agree in prayer with the person sitting next to you, you can also agree in prayer with the generation behind you. He talked about how he's at his alma mater, Christ for the Nations Institute in Dallas, Texas. That's where I, where I work as a professor. He's leading the student body there in prayer. And while he's praying for revival for the school, the Lord said to him, Dutch, I want you to come in agreement with the prayers of the founder of this school. And you know how you, you're, you're talking to people at one time and, and the Holy Spirit's talking to you on another level, right? That's what's going on. So he's having this dialogue in his brain with the Holy Spirit. And he says, okay, Holy Spirit, is this really you? Because that man's dead. That founder's been dead for more than 30 years, and I know you're not in the talking to the dead. Is this you? And then he, this thought came to his mind. The Lord said to him, I didn't say come in agreement with him. I said come in agreement with his prayers. His prayers are still alive before my throne. There are things I promised this man in prayer that I want to release into this school, but I can't do it yet because I need this generation to come in agreement with that generation. I want to release the synergy of the ages coming together. It's like with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God raised up an Isaac. God raised up Abraham, promises a nation, raised up an Isaac, then a Jacob, breaks that Jacob thing off that boy. <laughs> Names him Israel because he promised this man back here a nation. And when he did it for Israel, it was just as if he'd done it for Abraham. So finally, that scripture made sense. All these by faith. They were proved for their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. So that apart from us, they wouldn't be made perfect without us. In other words, God starts something in one generation, and then he'll complete it exponentially through future generations to come. It connects us to their unfinished business. Like, in other words, there's this whole company of people looking over the balcony of heaven saying, hey, y'all, hey, whites, hey, lockets, hey, forwards, don't mess this thing up. Because God started something in us that he wants to complete exponentially through you. Jesus said it best when he said, what, greater works than these are you going to do because I'm going to the Father. 
And so he'll start something in one generation and complete it exponentially through future generations. And we take up their unfinished business. And so now if this really helped me understand how Psalm 133 is not just about us connecting what God starts in our today. It's also about us connecting what God started in our yesterday. Why do I say that? Because the garments of the priesthood, that one, that one garment that the priest wore, that was the only thing that was passed down from priest to priest to priest. So powerful when you think about it. It's hard for us to understand the concept because when we think about <coughs> anointing somebody, like they said, when they, they would anoint the priest, we just think how we do it today. You know, we take a little bit of oil and we put it on our finger and we thump people on the forehead and we call it a day, right? <laughs> I, I, I did the little smack thing again, right? <laughs> you don't smack them inside the head. Don't do that. <laughs> Send people to sozos. But anyway, <laughs> you know, we take a little oil, we thump them on the forehead, and we call it a day. And that's not what they did back then with the high priest. What they did was they took a whole gallon full of oil. They put it all over that high priest's head. And that oil dripped down from his head onto his beard and listen, onto his robe. Listen, that one robe was then passed down to the next high priest. And then this same robe is on this new high priest, but he receives an oil for his generation. But as the oil drips down from his head to his beard, the oil drips down and mingles with the anointing from the past on the same robe. Then that robe is passed down to the next high priest. In other words, there's supposed to be this momentum-building anointing that goes from generation to generation to generation. The saturation of the ages, if you will. So everybody's looking for the next purpose-driven this or that. They're looking for the next uh, woman that I lose something, right? <laughs> and those are great titles. Those are great authors. I'm not knocking that. My point is this. God's not after originality. You know what he's looking for? Especially right now. He's looking for a successor. And to a successor, he released a double portion of anointing on them that was so powerful and not only make them impactful and relevant for this generation, but it'll make them a springboard for future generations to come. In the place of prayer. So that says it, and I'm a wreck. You know why? I remember this pot. Like I said, it was used by the slaves in my family. They used it for cooking. They used it for washing clothes. But secretly, it was used for prayer. It was secretly used for prayer because they were owned by a slave master who would beat them for any reason. Praying was one of them. The irony of the peculiar institution that they called slavery, the peculiar institution, oh, yes, it was very peculiar. It was peculiar in this way. They wanted slaves to be Christians because they knew that Christian slaves made better workers. But they would pervert the gospel and say, slaves be obedient to your masters if you want to go to heaven. In other words, it became this work salvation doctrine. Now, we know that we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that none of us shall boast. We know that, but it was, it was easy to teach slaves that back then because it was against the law for slaves to read and write. It was also against the law for anybody to teach them how to read and write. And so if these slaves were caught praying, they would be beaten. And the reason why is because they didn't want them to kind of, kind of hope for freedom, Right? So giving an idea of how cruel slavery was on that plantation in Lake Providence, we had the story passed down in a family about a great uncle of ours named Uncle Willie, who, the way the story, when he decided to go fishing and he forgot to ask, right? So when he comes back to the plantation, the slave master and the overseer decided to make an example out of him. So they take him and they strap him to a tree and put both arms and legs around either side of that tree. They then take this... Uh, 
leather strap which has rocks and nails and glass attached to it, something like the cat and tail. And they beat this slave forefather of ours until all the flesh is pulled out of his back. The family, in an effort to save his life, they take this huge sheet and they put lard or you know, grease on it and used it and wrapped it like one big band-aid around them. They put grease on the sheet so that the cotton from the sheet wouldn't stick to the exposed skin from his back. Right? But in spite of their efforts and because of the cruelty that he endured, he, he bled to death and died. Right? So that's how cruel slavery was on that plantation there in Lake Providence. But the powerful and the beautiful thing about this is that the folks who passed down this pot, they were Christians, and they decided to pray anyway. So what they would do is they'd go into a barn late at night to make sure their prayer meeting wasn't seen. But to make sure that their prayer meeting wasn't heard, they used this kettle pot. So here's what they would do. They'd take the pot into the barn, and then they would take it, and they would invert it, and they'd lay it flat down on the cabin floor. They then would lay flat on the ground, and they would take rocks and invert the kettle, about three or four rocks, and invert the edges so it creates this little gap between the ground and the kettle. And prostrating themselves, they pray in, the in between the opening between the ground and the kettle so that the kettle muffled their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story that was passed down with this pot is this, is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time, so they prayed for the freedom of their children in the next generation. So one day, freedom comes. There's this young teenage girl in our family. We don't know what her name is to this day, but she decides to keep this pot and that story in our family. Now, why would she do that? She's probably thinking about all those who are dead and gone, who risked their lives to pray for her. But she also is probably thinking about all those who are too old to enjoy the freedom she's about to embrace. She's thinking about the privilege that she's about to step into. So she's to keep, she decides to keep this pot and that story in our family, and she passes the pot down to Harriet Lockett. Harriet Lockett passed the pot down to her daughter, Nora Lockett. Nora Lockett passed the pot down, pot down to her son, William Ford Sr., who then gave it to William Ford Jr., who then gave it to me, William Ford III. <laughs> so think about it. I'm there at this conference, hearing this man talk about agreeing with the prayers of those who have gone before us, taking up their unfinished business, the exponential results that can be released and created from that, I start to think about the heart that God had given me for revival in America. I start thinking about how I've been a spiritual father and mentor to all these youth around me. And all of a sudden, he hits me. To whom much is given, much is required. I knew I had to take up their responsibility to pray and be an intercessor. But then I also thought about the privilege I thought, my God, I get to agree with the prayers of my forefathers for the freedom of this next generation. I thought about the exponential results that could be released and created from that. I was talking to Dutch about this, and he said that uh, he was praying, asking God for confirmation, too, about should we do this prayer gathering together. And He said his Bible fell open to Zechariah 14 and 20. Part B of that verse says, and the cooking pots in the house of the Lord. She'll be like the bowls before the altar. So here's this cooking pot that's caught up with prayers and saying whether well, bowls in heaven that catches our prayers 
like incense. Revelation 5 and 8 said there are bowls in heaven full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Listen, there's not one wasted prayer in heaven. God catches your prayers, not in Tupperware bowls, not in wooden bowls, but in golden bowls because that's how precious your prayers are to God. There's a prayer bowl over your family. There's a prayer bowl over your community. There's a prayer bowl over your nation. God's looking for a new generation to resource the prayer bowls again. That said something to me that was so powerful. He said, Will, wouldn't it be just like God in his justice and irony that he used the prayers of a slave generation to free a nation up for revival again? So I'm glad he said generation because it wasn't just black Christian slaves praying back then. There were white Christian abolitionists back then who knew that if a person was a slave, was a Christian, then that person was their brother. They laid their lives down for each other. Many of them had their houses burned. Many of those abolitionists were shot. They were killed. They were lynched because they chose to suffer with the people of God rather than compromise and wink at slavery. And it was the prayers of that godly remnant of white abolitionists and black Christian slaves that prayed into being the first and the second great awakening. Listen, had it not been for those revivals, slavery would have never ended in this nation. And the privilege that we have today is that we get to step into that unfinished business. Because, listen, this is not just about my story. This is all of our story. Why do I say that? One thing I learned from those abolitionists, listen, they were willing to risk their lives for their brothers and sisters who were Christians in slavery. Because they knew that they shared the same blood. They were part of the same family household. They were Christians. They were blood brothers in Christ Jesus because of the blood of Jesus. So if my ancestors have been Muslims or Buddhists, honestly, I have no connection to this pot or its history. But because they were Christians, listen, not only these my ancestors and forefathers, they're yours too, if you're a Christian. In other words, I'm just as much a spiritual son of Jonathan Edwards and Charles Finney as you are of Martin Luther King and William Seymour, C.H. <laughs> Mason, Paul the Apostle, <laughs> Moses. <laughs> What am I getting at? It was the prayers of that godly remnant that prayed into being the first and the second great awakening. And back during that time, there was this, there was this um, Supreme Court law called Dred Scott, which said that slaves had no rights in the courtroom. Everybody thought that law was what they called settled law. That's everybody's little favorite word now. That's settled law. But because of revival, that law was broken in the hearts of people in our country. right? And eventually... People go into freedom. So listen, the same God who broke the power of Dred Scott, he can break the power of Roe v. Wade. He can put an end to systemic poverty. He can stop our schools from being a pipeline to prison. He can shut down mass incarceration. He can shut down the, the, the opiate crisis that happened in the suburbs and the crack houses that are being raised up in inner city. He's just looking for a new generation of people who will drop their agendas and come together and believe in the place of prayer. These things are connected and more connected than we realize, and maybe we'll touch that on it this weekend, but the whole thing with eugenics and the race issue and population control and all these other things that are connected to this, it's bigger than we realize. I signed up for more than what I realized, in other words. I thought I was just prayer walking my neighborhood so I can see goosebumps and see people fall out in church and see them get back up and, you know, play, you know, church games. You're like, you do me, I do you, boom. God wants to transform a whole nation, reform society. That's what he's after. I was in prayer. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I was in prayer one day, and while I was praying, 
uh, on this prayer journey, Keller tour there in Williamsburg. First day there, all I, the only way I can describe it is I got baptized in the Holy Spirit again. And I began weeping uncontrollably for about two and a half to three hours. I kind of felt like I was having a nervous breakdown, to be honest. Travail hit me. I didn't know what travail was. I had no language for it at that time. Spirit of travail hit me. I've only had that happen maybe two or three times in my life. That was the first time. I was like, God, what is going on with me? And my friend, Dutch Sheets, was with me. He's a mentor to me. I said, Dutch, what is going on? He said, same thing happened to me. God's just breaking your heart for America. Drink lots of water. (laughs) 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 That's what he says to me. Yeah. And here's what the Lord said to me. The Lord said to me, William, you walked me through your neighborhood. Now I'm walking you through my neighborhood in America. And I'm sharing with you my heart of how brokenhearted I was over the division between the Native Americans and the settlers. And sharing with you how my heart was broken over uh, the division between the races, red, yellow, black, and white, here in this nation. Just seeing all these scenes that's play out in my mind's eye. And then the Lord said this to me. He said, William, if I heard the whispers of slaves underneath kettle pots, how much more so do I hear the silent screams of babies being aborted in this nation? And my heart was shattered to pieces. <laughs> and I realized something, just like with the Dred Scott case, Roe v. Wade, they both have the same kind of language. A child in the womb has no rights in the courtroom, just like the slave had no rights in the courtroom back then. And I started seeing these similarities and started getting God's heart over the whole overarching issue of the whole race issue and a huge dynamic. Probably didn't have this kind of language for it back then, but I do now. A lot of people saying black lives matter, and we understand that. A lot of people saying all lives matter, and I understand where that's coming from. And there's some even neo-Nazis saying white lives matter. God's saying drill down deeper. Life matters. Life matters. Because when the people that you cannot see become optional, it's inevitable that some of the people that you can see will be marginalized, even to the place of elimination. And so I started seeing this thing, and like the same God who wept over Philando Castile is the same God who wept over the five police officers that were killed in my city, Dallas, and he weeps over 60 million babies that have been aborted in this nation. So I started getting his heart for this whole thing in a deeper way. So the Lord started speaking to me about how he wanted to heal the race issue and, uh, and how <clears throat> he was going to raise up a new civil rights movement that included everybody this time. And he showed me this through a dream that he gave me about the dream of Martin Luther King. <laughs> so in this dream, I'm on my way to Martin Luther King's old church where the civil rights movement got started. But in the dream, I had to first go pick up Dr. King. <laughs> so it's a dream, right? So Dr. King comes out of this house. And then the dream, he has this huge white duffel bag with black handles on it. And in the dream, he starts emptying all this dark garbage out of that duffel bag. And then he throws the bag down violently, and he comes to get into this vehicle with us. And in the dream, I think to myself, man, that bag will make a nice souvenir. It shows you how carnal I am, right, even in my dreams. I'm thinking, you know, I went to Morehouse College. Dr. King went to Morehouse College. The bag will make a nice souvenir. So in the dream, I go to try to pick it up. But before I could touch the bag, in the dream, Dr. King grabs me by my shoulders, and he says, no, do not go back and pick that up. And he starts telling me what I need to do to heal the race issue in this nation. I wake up from the dream in tears. And um, 
I looked at my pillow, it was soaked with tears. I shared the friend, my dream with my friend, Lou Engel. He begins to weep. We're praying, God, what, what's the interpretation for the dream? I'm like, God, remind me. What did Dr. King say to me? And the Lord said to me, William, the white bag with the black handles, that would be your interpretation for the dream. And I knew what God was talking about. The black handles represent how basically I, as an African-American, as a black man, had handled my white baggage. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your white baggage. You've been carrying it for way too long. And I knew what God was talking about because I knew what it was like at 13 years old when myself and three other friends, we were uh, on our way to, uh, we were leaving a convenience store, actually, like a 7-Eleven. And as we were walking out, a carload full of white guys chased us for almost two hours, called us the N-word, said they were going to shoot and kill us. They were joyriding, but we were terrified. Then I remember later on when I was 19 years old, I was in a, I was in a grocery store and this uh, police officer falsely accused me of shoplifting. And when they couldn't find anything on me, he be began to say ugly things to me to try to provoke me into a fight just so he can have something to take me in. Uh, and uh, I remember later on in my 30s, my first house, for the first three months in that neighborhood, the same police officer at least once or twice a week would stop me j for just driving while black. I know what that feels like, but you know what I've done? For every police officer, for every white person that lived in that area, I put those three experiences on every person before I had one conversation with them. I categorized everybody. It's uh, Revelation 12 where it says that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. The word accuser there is a powerful word. It's, it comes from the word categoros, where we get the word category in English. In other words, the diabolical plot of the devil is to get us to categorize and stereotype each other so that before we can have one conversation with somebody, we put that one, one to two, three bad experiences or bad stories on other people before we can ever have a dialogue with them. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your bitterness. Get rid of your resentment. Get rid of your unforgiveness. Get rid of your, your guilt manipulation. Get rid of your white baggage so we can all get in a new vehicle that can bring revival and justice for everybody. So the question for everybody right now is this, what color is your baggage? Get rid of it because we need each other because only a united church is going to heal a divided nation. So I had this big, thick book would be called The Testament of Hope, 600-page book in that church where Dr. King used to preach, and that book just happens to fall open to the I Have a Dream speech. <laughs> and I start reading that speech like a prayer from that pulpit that Dr. King preached from, and I get to this part where he says, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners could sit together at the table of brotherhood. And for the first time, I began to pray for the family that owned our family where this kettle pot came from. But little did I know that Mr. Poema was connecting me <laughs> to some more unfinished business. So my friend Luingo says, hey, come share this story. Bring the pot, <laughs> share this dream at the, at the Lincoln Memorial uh, January 17, 2005, and that's where I meet this guy out in the audience. So, anyway, Matt Lockett, come up, please share. And Good evening. There it is. Good evening.
Bill, and, and I, I want to just say to my heart, I, I want to thank you. Our heart is never not thank you. How's that for Southern um, <laughs> I, I'm just, I love being up here, and uh, I feel like we're in a, a divine season right now. It just feels like so many things are changing in the nation. I so thankful that God has stationed his hand of love on our community here in this date uh, for the nation. I'm thankful that God's put us on Capitol Hill down in Washington, D.C. Do any of you ever get down that way? Everybody should come to D.C. All the demons. <laughs> you should come too. It's fun. Um... <laughs> Oh, you think I'm joking? <laughs> so it's good to be here. I um, I, I just want to, I just felt so tender tonight. I don't yeah. know what's going on. We Will and I just got off the plane from Canada. We were in Alberta, Edmonton, Alberta, for the last few days, and the Canadians are rowdy. <laughs> Man, they're loud and they're rowdy, and, and uh, you all are quiet and thoughtful. <laughs> This is what I'm used to. This is this is what it's like in Washington D.C. You can preach and spit fire, and everyone's like, <laughs> it's just quiet and thoughtful. I get it. Hey, there's some people over here behind this column. No, so I get it. I feel like I'm at home tonight. So, um, you know, uh, the best way. To do this, as Will said before, is just to jump into the story. And so I'm going to start right where Will left off. He was at a prayer gathering on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. It was January 17, 2005. And I'm going to start there, but I, I kind of have to hit pause to give you a little bit of background. I'm actually going to back up a year from that day. Actually, exactly one year to the day. It was January 17, 2004 that something really unexpected uh, and tragic happened to me when my dad passed away. And it was sudden, uh, it was unexpected. Uh, and if, you know, I'm looking around tonight, I see a lot of young people. And so probably, I would dare say, the majority of this room has not gone through the experience of losing a parent yet. But you know what? You're going to. It's coming. And uh, uh, I wasn't expecting it when it happened to me. And, and just think for a second, just uh, growing up, how much you depended on mom, how much you've depended on dad. Uh, and, and you've been the recipient of their lives, the recipient of their provision, the recipient of the stories, right? You grow up hearing the stories about, you know, how crazy the family is, you know, the things that, you know, so-and-so did. Everybody's got a crazy uncle. <laughs> always causes trouble at Thanksgiving. I'm sorry. You know, that's I'm just sorry. part of the family story, right? We've all got those characters in the family. But you grow up hearing those stories, receiving them, you take it in, it becomes a part of you, but then all of a sudden, you're going to get to the point when you lose mom and dad. And there's something actually, an exchange that takes place. It's a divine moment uh, I've come to discover is that, that a, a mantle gets cast whether you, want, whether you want it or not, uh, a storytelling mantle 
uh, gets transferred, and you now become the steward of the story. You become the steward of the story that's going to now move forward through your life to your children, to the rest of the family, and the generations to come. And so you have to start asking yourself some really hard questions, asking God some really hard questions during that time. And so I'll tell you a little bit about what I went through when I lost my dad. Now, I became a Christian when I was 15 years old. I had been a Christian for most of my life at that point. But here I was, uh, an adult man, and I'm asking like these really honest, hard questions like, who am I? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? At some point, God had a dream. We're talking a lot about dreams tonight. We're going to talk about that more. So at some point, God had a dream, and then he wrapped flesh and bone around that dream, and you are the embodiment of that dream. You ever thought about yourself that way? You know, listen, uh, America is, the church in America is in identity has been in an identity crisis for quite some time. We don't know who we are. We don't know what we're supposed to be doing. We think we do, but when it really comes down to it, right? You understand what I'm saying? Like we kind of, we're kind of like lost in a sense. We don't know who we are. And, and God, I think, has been, has been crying out, especially in the, pre, in the last decade, there's been like a pinpoint focus where God is saying uh, sonship. Right. He's highlighting sonship and the identity of of sons and daughters in him. Like without question, this is what the Holy Spirit has been highlighting for at least a decade. And so I think God is addressing this identity crisis in the church that we're serving in right now. And he's bringing us into something, a place of identity. So these questions, these are good questions to ask, you know, to direct that question to God. That's a good question to ask. Don't don't. Try to find an answer from a worldly, uh, uh, you know, perspective, trying to figure out who you are. Ask your heavenly father, who am I? Who do you say that I am? What is the work that you've designed me to do, Mr. Poema, right? Like Will was saying. So I was asking those questions. And, uh, uh, the, you know, the, those, those kind of questions need really big answers. And so one of the things that became really important to me during that time was I wanted to find out where my family came from. Uh, and in particular, like things like family trees and genealogies. Now, I like to ask for a show of hands. How many of you in this room have looked into your, your family genealogy? Surprisingly, high number of hands just went up. That's actually really encouraging. I'm, I'm stunned right now because usually I can ask that question in a room uh, with about, you know, this many people and, and at about this kind of age group. And I'll ask that question and maybe one or two hands will go up. And, and I've been noticing that. Uh, and what that tells me is that right now we're losing stories. You can go, you know, talk to your parents or your grandparents and, and there's, there, you know, they'll get the, 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 the family Bible out, right? That's got the whole genealogy written in the front cover and you can see everything. But for some reason right now at least in this most recent generation something is being lost stories are being lost and i believe that god wants us to rediscover these stories the stories of where he has made promises in the past that did not get fulfilled you see why i'm saying like like it's important 
for us to know where we came from. You know, it's, it, this isn't just about like, so we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. While that's important, I'm talking about where we have ancestors that God made legitimate promises to, and they did not see the answer to their prayers because God was reserving the answer for us so that an exponential release could, could happen in our day, right? Isn't that Hebrews 11, what Will just read? So see, we need to rediscover some of these stories that have been lost. And so for me, I wanted to find out where my family came from. And that was really hard and really painful because in my family, we couldn't get beyond my dad's grandfather. The, the genealogy was completely lost. There had been things like courthouse fires where records were lost, but really it just comes down to somewhere along the way. Somebody stopped telling the stories. And so in my dad's family, we had no idea where the lockets came from. And, uh, you know, my dad, uh, he would make a joke out of it. He would just say, you know, I guess we're just a bunch of mutts from Kentucky. You know, that was like the identity that his generation adopted. See, my dad was one of 16 siblings. <laughs> and they were Catholic. <laughs> they just had a tobacco farm in Kentucky and they needed slave labor. <laughs> <laughs> Again, not joking. <laughs> and so here uh, I decided during that season, it was 2004, that I was going to get the breakthrough where all the other members of my family have failed. I'm, I'm going to be the one that's going to crack this open. And uh, listen, I've got cousins on top of cousins that have tried to do this in the past, and they've all hit these roadblocks. And guess what? I hit all the same obstacles that they did. So I was actually finishing that year more frustrated than it started because I hadn't found out anything. I set my mind to figure out something, just to find some tidbit, some nugget, and I'm finishing that year of searching empty-handed, like I had nothing. And it was during that time that I had a dream. So we are talking about dreams tonight. Now, how many of you, do we have any dreamers here? How many of you dream? Now, of course, like Dr. King, he had a dream for the future, the dream of his heart, but I'm talking about the kind where you go to sleep at night and you feel like the God of the universe is speaking your language to you and late night pizza doesn't get all the credit. <laughs> so again, hands. Oh, okay, so we're in good company tonight. I'm talking about those kinds of dreams right now. So I had a dream where God began to talk to me about how he wanted to end abortion in America and how he was gonna do that through day and night prayer. Now. I knew that this dream came from somewhere else. It didn't bubble up from my day, right? Where you just get those kitchen sink dreams where it's just kind of filled with everything that you were worried about during the day. This came from somewhere else because there were, there were three parts of this dream that, that were peculiar. One is I didn't know anything about abortion. Now, maybe you can relate to this. I have been a Christian most of my life. But that was one of those things where it just wasn't my focus. I was content to let other people make some noise and comments about that, but it wasn't my focus. Now listen, I've come to find out that just because it wasn't important to me doesn't mean it wasn't important to God. So God was actually introducing me something that was very important to his heart in this dream. So the second thing is that I didn't know anything about prayer. So God was showing me how he was going to do this through day and night prayer. Now every Christian thinks they know about prayer. Like you feel like you just kind of intuitively get it, right? Until you have to lead a prayer meeting. <laughs> then you learn in about five or six minutes <laughs> that you don't know anything about prayer. <laughs> Trust me. 
lead a prayer meeting. Bill, you got a schedule where people can <laughs> sign up, right? All right, like that should be like part of what you teach people is you don't know anything about prayer, okay? <laughs> Trust me, that's how it works. You just kind of dive in head first. Third thing about this dream that was so strange is that I met a man in my dream named Lou Engle. Now, how many of you know who Lou Engle is? Most of the room, okay. Very intricate piece of Will's story, Bill and Tammy's story, our story in D.C. At that time, I didn't know uh, Lou Engle. So this dream, it came from somewhere else. You see how I'm, I'm trying to explain it here. It, it was made up of things. God, God was showing me things that I didn't previously know about. I talked to Lou Engle in the dream. He had this raspy voice. You know, it was, it was crazy. But I, I, I knew that God was introducing me to something, and I, it demanded a response from me. Our dreams, I, I'm convinced that our dreams are invitations into God's dreams for our lives. And, and, and we ought to handle our dreams gently and treat them as holy invitations into our destinies. What, what, what makes you cry? That's really what it amounts to. Will wakes up in the middle of the night and his, his pillow is soaked. What wakes you up in the middle of the night? What is the dream that, that you've woken up from crying over? Listen, treat those dreams gently. Like put them on shelves and, and cherish them. And God brings them about in the most extraordinary way. So uh, I didn't know what to do with the dream, but I found out that there was this real guy named Lou Engle. He was really doing this thing with prayer. And so I started like searching around and through a friend of a friend of a friend, I got the phone number of somebody who worked with the Lou Engle. And I cold called him like a sales call. And uh, we all love those, right? <laughs> so the guy answers and I says, hi, I, I don't know you and you don't know me, but I had a dream. And he goes, really, what was your dream? Like, I thought, man, this is going to be like a drive-by. I'm just going to drop this off. <laughs> Clearly, this dream is for them. I'm done. I'll be a prophet to Lou Engle. <laughs> so he took me seriously, and he's like, tell me the dream. So I tell him the dream, and he says, this is very interesting. You've just dreamt exactly what the Lord is sending us to do. We have a group of young people. We're going to Washington, D.C. to pray for the ending of abortion in America. And he said this, he said, we're going to have a prayer gathering on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on Martin Luther King Day, January of 2005. He said, maybe you should come to it. God might have something for you there. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, that, that might have been the understatement of the century. And so I, I was trying to figure out, you know, maybe you can relate to this, too. It's like, do you, God, do you really want me to take time off work and spend hard-earned money to fly across the country to go to a prayer meeting. You know, it's like, do, you, do I really need to do this? And so you start, you guys play the confirmation game? You know what I'm talking about? Where you're like, God, do you really, is this really you? Do you really want me to do this? And you like make this intricate thing like that is like impossible, like some kind of like puzzle, whatever. And you're like, if you do this, then I'll know it's you. And I will be obedient. <laughs> and then you look at it, and then he does it. it it's, it's like, I don't know what the balance of that is, where it's like, thou shalt not test the Lord thy God. But then he's, God's like, yeah, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> so he'll do it, and you kind of look at it, and you're like, but if it's really you, <laughs> I'm going to need you to do this too. And then he does that, and you're like, all right, I'm in. 
So that's kind of what happened to me. So like God confirmed to me I was supposed to, you know, take time off work and come to this prayer meeting in Washington, D.C. And, and it was during that time that I got my hands on a recording of Lou Engle preaching. And I, I don't even remember the message, but he made this one statement that pierced my heart. And I want to share it with you. It's stuck with me all these years. And he said this. He said, what moves you? What is your passion? Stay close to the burning bush in your life. What burns in you and never goes out, when you find something like that, draw close to it, and you'll hear your name called. You want me to repeat that? (laughs) What moves you? What is your passion? Stay close to the burning bush in your life. What burns in you and never goes out, when you find something like that, draw close to it, and you'll hear your name called. So obviously, like most of us realize, that's referencing Moses. Moses is, uh, you know, he's, he's fled Egypt. He's, he's uh, on the backside of the desert taking care of somebody else's sheep for 40 years. Listen, when you're doing that, every day is just like all the other days. Imagine, like, being in that position. Like, every day is exactly the same, day after day after day. Nothing ever changes. Except this one day was unlike all the other days. All right. This one day he's walking along and he sees a bush and it's on fire. But I don't think that's what was strange. Because, I mean, you can kind of like reason through this. Like it's the desert. It's dry. There's dry things. Lightning strikes, whatever it is. I don't think it's unusual to see a bush that's on fire. What was unusual at this moment is that the bush didn't go out. And. Think about it this way. I'm so thankful that we serve a God who can set a bush on fire in our lives and it won't go out. I think I think we waste so much time worrying that we're going to miss it. I think it's a whole lot harder to miss it. So God leads us to these moments. And it's, it's not enough to just see it and kind of tip your hat to it. It says there that when God saw that Moses turned aside, right? He says, I will turn aside and see this great sight. And it says, when God saw him turn aside, then he calls out to him, Moses. See, when we get into these divine, holy moments like this, you got to lean into them. I think actually tonight is, it could be a holy moment for many of you. That you've been, it could be the moment that you've been waiting on, and God's wanting to see if you're going to lean into it. And it's in a moment like that, a holy moment, where you'll actually hear your name called. God will begin to unfold the destiny that, that he's already planned. And I, I want to say this here. I'd like to point this out, that when Moses leaned into his holy moment, I don't know if he realized it or not, probably didn't. But God had already promised Abraham, your descendants are going to be oppressed for 400 years. God knew at the beginning there was going to be a day for a jailbreak. Moses is leaning into his holy moment and hearing his name call. But what's really happening on a bigger meta narrative scale is that God had unfinished business and it was about time for a jailbreak. Moses's holy moment was a holy moment for the whole nation. Do you see what I'm saying? He was actually stepping into the unfinished business of God. So what is what is America depending on tonight for you to step into your holy moment? 
You don't know. It's not just about you. But it is about you. Isn't that kind of, it's kind of a weird uh, paradox, you know, it's that it's not about you, but it is about you. The, the stories of nations are told through the stories of our lives. So Moses leans into his moment. He hears his name called. Lou said that, and it pierced my heart because I had been searching all year, trying to figure out what my family history was. I had no idea. And so I had one prayer going to that prayer meeting. I had a couple months leading up to it. I just said, God, I want to hear my name called. It's such a pure and genuine and simple and honest prayer. God, I want to hear my name called. And so I made plans and arrangements to go to this prayer meeting on Martin Luther King Day in D.C. I lived in Colorado at the time. What is it about Colorado? It's a high place. I don't know. Mile high cities where I live. And it is high there now. <laughs> it's legal now. <laughs> that was an uncomfortable laugh in the room, by the way. <laughs> it's okay. So um, my wife was pregnant at that time uh, with our youngest and, uh, and so I decided I was going to take my 10-year-old daughter with me. I just thought it'd be a fun trip, dad, daddy-daughter, uh, you know, trip. But, but uh, I got to the steps of the Lincoln. Now, I, I like to do a little show and tell here. I brought pictures. I want you to see this prayer meeting just so you don't think, you know, just get a right picture in your head. If you want to put that first image up, it wasn't a huge gathering. You know, this wasn't a stadium event. This, this is just, you know, a few hundred people. And so you can look in the background there. That's the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. That is my favorite place in Washington, D.C. to go to. And so we're standing there on the steps. That's the spot where Dr. King gave the I Have a Dream speech, right? Historic location. Uh, if you look on the right third of the screen, you might recognize that's Lou Engel there in the, the prayer meeting. You might recognize some others. But if you look on the left side of the screen and you follow that blue sleeve out to the end of those fingertips, You'll see Will Ford. All right. So I didn't know Will Ford at, the, at that time, but I want you to see this because this spot, the steps of the Lincoln, this is the first place that Will Ford and I first came together. And it was in a prayer meeting. There's something about prayer meetings, man. I think God, I don't think it's an accident that Will and I met in a prayer meeting. I think God is writing a story right now where we have an opportunity to find each other in the prayer meetings. We'll get to that more in a little bit. So we prayed that day. I honestly didn't know anything about prayer. I didn't know why I was there. I just brought a camera to take pictures. You know, prayer tourist. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know why we had to do it outside in January for eight hours. It was zero degrees that day. Look, you see the guy in the middle there? That, this is like a wind, like like an Arctic parka. Like it was cold that day. It was literally zero degree wind chill. But we prayed there. And uh, that uh, evening we gathered at a local church and there was a guest speaker named Will Ford. And he brought out this cast iron kettle here and he told the story that he just shared with you tonight. And uh, I, I was hearing it for the very first time. And I was so broken. Now, re remember, it was one year to the day that since my father had passed away. And I'm listening to this story, and I'm provoked by it, but, 
I'm a raw nerve, too, because of the loss of my dad and all the things that it was kind of stirring up, being the anniversary and the frustration of not finding anything out about my family. And yet I'm listening to this man tell the story of this rich spiritual heritage about his forefathers and how they prayed and how they contended for this nation. And I was so provoked by it. But then he shared this, and it was actually the first time that he ever said it publicly in that kind of a setting, is that this kettle was handed down to Harriet Lockett who gave it to Nora Lockett, to Will Ford Sr., to Will Ford Jr., to Will Ford III. And as soon as he said that, my 10-year-old daughter turned to me and said, Daddy, he just said our name. What was my prayer? I had no idea God would be that literal. Like, he's really good. <laughs> God, I want to hear my name called. God's like, okay. <laughs> Literally heard my name called. So I... After the meeting, I, I, I just, I got to figure out what's going on, right? And so I go up, I meet Will, and we start comparing notes. And so he asked me, did your locket spell their name with one T or two? And we said, I said, two. He said, well, our locket spelled it with one T. And then he asked, where were your lockets from? And I said, well, we don't really know. We guessed Kentucky, but, that, you know, we don't really know. And he said, well, our lockets were all the way down in Louisiana. And we just thought it was this amazing coincidence that, it, it was enough, though, that it, it just connected us as friends. We struck up a friendship. We prayed that night. We actually, we prayed and did some repenting and forgiveness and stuff. It was really good. I'm so thankful for that first night that I prayed with you, Will. But, uh, but we struck up a friendship and a relationship that God called me out of the marketplace uh, to be a full-time prayer mis missionary on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. And so my life got changed in a radical way. Uh, leaving a career and going, going uh, uh, full-time missionary stuff. It was it a was, uh, wild ride and still is. It's amazing. I love what I do. And um, at the beginning of, uh, of J-Hop, uh, so there in Washington, D.C., that was the first J-Hop that Lou founded back in 2004. This October will be our 15th anniversary. October 4th, 15th anniversary. I'm excited about that. God's good. But... Um, there was a dream that God gave us at the very beginning of J-Hop that really marked us. And I, I want to share this dream, too, uh, because it's very important to the story. So pay really close attention to this. In the dream, we were standing in a hall of this huge building that was lined with courtrooms. And the Lord spoke to us through the dream and said, either you deal with Roe v. Wade in your courts or I will deal with it in mine. Now, that's pretty serious language. And we look, and at the end of this, uh, this path that leads through this building is this huge courtroom, and on the door it says Appomattox Courthouse. Now, how many of you know what Appomattox Courthouse is? Yeah, see, this is what always happens, because I slept through history class too. <laughs> so let me just take a time out and do a little American History 101, all right? So... Um, and, and maybe probably not everybody here is, is, is from the United States. So this is just a little bit of a primer of, of history. Um, uh, 1861 to 1865, we fought a civil war. And at the beginning, a lot of people had opinions about what the war was about. But by the end, it was pretty clear. It was about slavery, right? This nation failed to deal with the shedding of the innocent blood of the African. That had gone on too long. I mean, it, from the very beginning, too long. This year is the 400th anniversary 
of the, the, the there was a, a, a Dutch ship that pulled into harbor at Jamestown, the original settlement, August 25th, 1619. They, they were damaged, they were in bad shape, they needed supplies. The only thing they had to barter with, with the settlers was uh, 20 and something uh, Africans. And the settlers made the exchange. So that started, so that is the root of something that started in this nation. That This nation is still, still dealing with the fallout of the consequences of that decision. Okay? We, there needs to be an open acknowledgement of that instead of denial. That, that, that there is not still a lingering curse in the land because of that original decision. But listen, guys, for the same, see, Moses leaned into his moment because it was time for a jailbreak. What if America is in that same moment right now, 400 years are up? Can we begin to prophesy 400 years are up? It's time for another jailbreak for America. So quiet and thoughtful. Yeah, that's a good point, brother. We could write that down. So we fought this civil war. It was about slavery. Everybody knew it, whether they denied it or not. Everybody knew it. I can take you in that Lincoln Memorial. Well, can you keep that picture up for me, please? I can take you in that Lincoln Memorial and carved in stone on the north wall are the words of Abraham Lincoln when he said, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that the scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills, that all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk. And if every drop of blood drawn by the last shall be repaid with another drawn by the sword, as it was said 3,000 years ago, so it must be said again, that the judgments of the Lord are righteous and true altogether. Those are the words of our president. Listen, by the end of the war, everybody knew what this was about. We had failed to deal with the shedding of the innocent blood of the African and God's divine hand of discipline was now in the land. So back to the dream, Appomattox. Appomattox is the end of the American Civil War. That is the place where General Lee, there's a popular topic, General Lee surrendered to General Grant at Appomattox Courthouse. So now ponder just for a minute. This is really serious. This is why I wanted you to pay close attention to the dream. God is now, he's plucking language out of American history and he's inserting it into the current situation that we are facing in this generation. These are serious terms. Why is God doing that? Because there's another injustice in this day that this generation is tolerating and has tolerated for far too long. And it is the shedding of the innocent blood of the baby in the womb. And what we need to understand right now is that God, for God to take that language, what he's saying to us is that the same God who wept over the shedding of the innocent blood of the Africans, it's the same God who weeps over this, and this generation has to respond. And so we've had one prayer <laughs> that, has, that has been at the core of Jehop from the very beginning. God, we don't want to go back to Appomattox. See, Appomattox represents the end of the war. That's the... That's after 750,000 people lost their lives on our soil. Brother against brother. A nation ripping itself apart. So you understand that prayer. We don't want to go back to Appomattox. It's why we've been standing in front of the Supreme Court for 15 years. With the red life tape, that's us. We're contending for the courts. It's because of that dream. Either you deal with it in your courts or I will deal with it in mine. So the courts are very important. So now... 
Fast forward. Lou Engle was going to do one of those call events in Virginia. It was a few years later. And he called and he's like, if we're going to do this in Virginia, first we have to go pray at Appomattox. We knew about it, but we'd never actually been there. It's out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the state. And so uh, right there in the center of Virginia. And so let me, let me explain the geography of it a little bit. It's 1865. Lee is in Richmond, Virginia, and Petersburg, Virginia, that area. And the Union Army has put a siege on him and blocked him in. And so they break through, and then Lee goes into retreat across the state of Virginia. He's running out of food. He's running out of bullets. He's running out of supplies. His men are hurting, and he's trying to get to a place of resupply to escape. But he gets to the middle of the state to a little place called Sailor's Creek. And it's there that he got stuck in the mud. He couldn't go any further, so he actually has to make his last stand Right there on April 6th, 1865, the Union Army overcame him. And so three days later on April 9th, that's a day that we're more familiar with, April 9th, 1865, that's when Lee surrendered at Appomattox. So there's your American history. Voila. Lou wants to go pray at Appomattox. So we go there. We prayed. We actually went into the farmhouse where Lee surrendered. You can stand in that room. How many of you have been there? Brandon, have you been there? The McLean Farmhouse, it's, it's been preserved, obviously, because it's so significant for us as a nation. But we went in there, we prayed for the president, we prayed for revival, prayed for the ending of abortion. And as we went to leave, we went into a little visitor center, you know, the little battlefield visitor centers. We went in, and Lou and I are standing side by side at a bookcase, and he grabs the first book on the shelf that caught his eye. <coughs> it was this book. And he opens it to the first random page. What is it about God and opening to random pages in books? <laughs> Boom. Whoa. So he, Lou opens this book to the first random page, and I, I brought a picture of it. I want, if you could go to the next image, I want you to see the page he turned to. It's this illustration. It's called The Last Shot, The Battle of Lockett's Farm. And he lets out a shudder, and he asks me, he's like, what is this? And I was like, I have no idea what this is. So I bought the book. I began to research this topic. And what I learned is that that last battle that Lee fought when, his, when he could go no further, he actually fought it in the front yard of a family named Lockett, spelled with two T's. That was the last battle before he was forced to surrender. And so I'm thinking, that's got to mean something, right? You, this is not, it's not rocket science. You know? <laughs> God knows we're not very smart, so he makes it really easy, right? So I'm thinking, that's got to mean something. And uh, it was about that time that my brother, my older brother, Bob, got the breakthrough on our family genealogy. He was doing some other, his own research, and it was, it was at that moment. He gets breakthrough, and he calls me, and he's like, you're not going to believe this. I got us all the way back to 1645. We came in as settlers from England, came in as settlers in Virginia. And I said, man, have I got a Virginia story for you. And I started to tell him about the end of the Civil War, and he stops me. He says, that's not that place down by Sailor's Creek, is it? I said, that is exactly where it is. He's like, oh, I just found the documents on it. That was our family. So <laughs> are, you, are, you, are, you, are you picking up what I'm laying down right now? <laughs> so it's not just that Lee 
fought his last battle. It's not that the war ended in the front yard of a family named Lockett. It was my family's front yard. We have never known this. Like no one in my, in my family has ever known this history. And so now the genealogy, the family tree has opened up where we, we, were these, we were the last great landowners in the state of Virginia. It was a massive family, and the tree was huge. So I uh, did what every good red-blooded intercessor in America ought to do. I put my prayer team in a van, and we went to try to find that place. I was shocked when I found out that it, too, has been preserved. If you want to go to the next image, just so you don't think I'm exaggerating, that's the Lockett Farmhouse. Now, if I could take you up really close to it, I could show you that it's still riddled with bullet holes from the day of battle. It's been preserved from that day. Right. There's bullet holes through the house. There's still bullets embedded in the in the frame of the house. Brandon went there with yeah. me. We were both there on that. This is the, the first day we went. And uh, that's a historical marker in the front yard. And it reads here. Lee fought his last battle. That's it, folks. Right there. The man that lives there, he invited us in and we walked in and I was shocked because framed and hanging on the wall was the locket genealogy. In the living room of the house, and I get the brother, my brother's research out, it's my family. Like, it's, there's no mistake here. This was my family. And he begins to ask me these questions, you know, like, like what, do you, what do you know about your family? And I, I didn't know very much at all. And he's like, well, you, some of you left here and went to Kentucky. I knew that part. That was it. But then he said this. He's, he's like, some left and were, went, moved to the deep south and were invo involved in very historical events. But then he said this, he said, some left and went to Louisiana. And the, sometimes the handwritten ledgers had a clerical error and they accidentally misspelled the name and dropped one of the T's. So you're thinking the same thing I was thinking, like this, this isn't real, right? This can't possibly be true, what I'm thinking right now. And so I kind of gathered up all this information and my family and I went down to Dallas where Will lives, and we just kind of laid this out. Will, why don't you come back up and join me, please, and share what we discovered. Yes, so Matt comes to Dallas and D.C. this time. Lily has always researched that, and we researched that, and we researched it. Don't know this, but uh, honestly, we're old and tired of the battle. Called by a genealogist that uh, back in the 1870s, the 1870, there it is. My oldest known family member was a man named Isaac Lockett. And in that census, he says he's 90 years old. So being a slave there in Lake Providence, Louisiana. But we looked at that information on that census, and he goes on to say that he was originally from Virginia. He's probably willed off to a family member or a friend down in Louisiana. And tell them about yeah. where this came from. Yeah, from Lake, Lake Providence. Well, but, but what they've, you've had it analyzed. Uh, yeah, analyzed. So we, we had this analyzed through uh, Colonial Williamsburg, and they said that it came probably from the Mid-Atlantic region area, not from the south, because the, the cast, the, uh, the molders, the, sh the yeah. machines that, that, that molded this together were up in the north. So, <clears throat> so we looked at that, looked at that information, and I dug a little deeper and realized it was Matt's family of Lockers. They were like 
the few lockets that were there in Virginia at that time period. So we spent another year <coughs> researching, and here's what we learned. Through empirical, through empirical ev evidence, we learned this. Matt's family <coughs> is the family who owned my family where this kettle pot came from. I don't know why I'm choked up here talking about this. We yeah, we've been doing this for four years, five years now. So think about it. Here's my family in Lake Providence <laughs> praying for the ending of slavery. Why Lake Providence? Maybe the lake of God's providence is way deeper and wider than we know. Maybe the family that you're born into, the place where you live, maybe none of that's a mistake. They're there in Lake Providence praying for the ending of slavery. And then all the way up at the farmhouse of the people who gave them their last name, slavery comes to an end in their front yard. But then, because he's the God of the past and the future, he connects two people from those family lines together, Matt and I. And Mr. Poema weaves our lives together so we can war against injustice in our day and cry out for awakening in our time. Because that's the kind of God we serve. All right. So you learn that. And then here's the other thing. Well, you can go to the next slide. So Matt and, and his family have these, these, these folks. So this, this is the Napoleon Lockett and Mary Lockett. Napoleon and Mary Lockett uh, were like the... Southern Bell, like aristocrats, the gone with the wind kind of aristocrats of that day. He was a colonel for the Confederacy. Um, he owned lots and lots of slaves. He owned himself personally 126 slaves. Between he and his 11 children, they owned close to 1,000 slaves. Right? And Mary was this Southern Bell aristocrat. And, and she didn't like the fact that the Confederate White House didn't have its own flag. So she hired a designer. And she designed and sewed together in her house the very first Confederate flag. Mary Lockett, Matt's distant great, 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 great. She came up with the idea for the Confederate flag. And delivered it and, to yeah, Jefferson Davis. Hand delivered it to Jefferson Davis. So this is what that flag looks like. If you put it in the next slide, that's the, <coughs> that's the original uh, Confederate White House. And that's the flag that flew in front of it. It's called the Stars and the Bars. But they thought, well, you know, that flag looks too much like the Union flag in battle, so let's come up with a different flag in battle. So they came up with a Confederate battle flag, which looks like that flag. So, but think about it. Through the same family where the flag of rebellion was raised up <laughs> because of the prayers of black Christian slaves and white Christian abolitionists, it, it actually in the same family, we'll get to that in a second, and all around the country, through the same family where the flag of rebellion was raised up in our country, next slide, the flag of surrender goes up in their front yard because of praying people, right? But then we found out something else. You know, but, but before we go to the something else, we'll, we'll touch on this a little bit more tomorrow. So, <clears throat> with, you know, we're all part of this prophetic movement thing, right, whatever, you know, wowie always stuff. We know we're praying people. Oh, my God, this is so cool. Yeah. Your people oh my people. Oh, my God. <laughs> then... After about a good seven months went by, it's like, hold up, your people are all my people. You know what I mean? All the sizzle kind of wore off. It's like, what about Uncle Willie? Uncle Willie. You know. <laughs> and honestly, I had to deal with some issues in my own heart. I realized, oh my God, I got to forgive. Because now I have a face connected to these stories in my family. 
a slave's being treated ugly or whatever, and their face belongs to somebody that I love. And now I'm trying to, I'm trying to forget how my friend was ever my enemy. And so I spend time, together we work through it and by ourselves we work through it, but I had to get over and forgive Matt's family for owning our family. Yeah, you want to tell them about your, your deal too? Yeah, I, th I think we want to really go a little bit deeper tomorrow yeah. afternoon. You have to, is it 2 o'clock tomorrow? You yeah. have to come back tomorrow because mm -hmm. we want to kind of drill down deeper mm -hmm. on this a little bit. I think God wants us to talk about this more, just the journey that we went through. But you got to understand it wasn't the story that connected us. Will and I had been praying together for about a decade before we found any of this any out. Stuff out. See, remember what I said at the beginning, that I think we're in a moment where God wants us to find each other in the prayer meetings. We had no idea. It's, it's like God let us build relationship and a love for each other for 10 years before he lifts the curtain and says, let me show you something I've been working on for a while. Mm -hmm. yep. But now... Just put yourself in my shoes for a minute. Can you imagine, like, all those years I've been hearing the stories about the kettle and the slaves who prayed, only to then find out that my connection to the story was to that of the slave owner. That was a hard thing to hear. Because, again, like, this wasn't abstract anymore. This had a face, and it was the face of somebody that I love. And, and the reality of that and the reality of the pain and the stories that go with that, it was realer than I could have imagined. And so uh, it was painful, but you know, here's the thing about God is he, he starts things in one generation so that he can continue them and finish them in a later generation. And so once the lid came off our family tree, oh man, it was like it was a treasure trove of things. Like there was no end to what we were discovering and it took time and a process. God let us sit on this for a year. It, le it was year, just, it was, uh, yeah, maybe a, a year and a half before then we found out more information. What I was uh, led to, to discover was that revival came to Virginia in the previous generation. And so uh, during the time of the Revolutionary War, when, again, there's war, there's armies moving, God's so faithful, he sends revival in the middle of the war. And I'm reading this book about how that broke out in the middle of of Virginia, right in the same area that we're talking about. And I'm stunned because it, it gave this historical account and it said that several men were added to the itineracy of the Methodist circuit riders as a result of that revival. And it listed their names and boom, right in the list is a man named Daniel Lockett. And I was like, wait a minute, I get out the family tree, I overlay it and I look right there, right place, right time. He's one of my ancestors gets caught in the revival and becomes a Methodist circuit rider. Now, do we have any Methodists here tonight? Yeah, come, on. come on. I got saved in the Wesleyan church, so come on. That's it. Two of us. <laughs> Three. Come on. So this is what you need to understand about the Methodists, and, and this, this is a huge point. At that time in history, the Methodists were adamant, staunch abolitionists. See, they were carrying the gospel to the frontier. They were the evangelists of their day. These guys were hardcore, right? On horses, carrying the gospel to the farthest reaches because people were so spread out, right, in the nation. And so in their horse saddlebags, they had Bibles and hymnals, but they also carried a thing called a manumission form. Have you heard that term before? It's a legal document that you sign, and it allows you to set your slaves free. 
Now think about this. How would you like to be at that altar call at that time that you come forward to get saved and then you're told that it's for freedom that Christ sets you free? <laughs> and you're given the opportunity to set your slaves free at the same time. Listen, we know from history that is exactly what happened because everywhere the circuit riders went, the population of freed slaves literally exploded exponentially. That is the power, folks, of the gospel of Jesus Christ to change the human heart, to shift the culture, and turn a nation. God's so faithful. Yeah, so, you know, I have family members who were, you know, in prison and done stuff we're not proud of. I've done stuff I'm not proud of. Thank God for deliverance, right? <laughs> but then I have these folks back here who were contending for revival in the ending of slavery. Matt had family members. Yeah, they owned slaves, but he also had family members that were abolitionists and also taught slaves how to read and write. We'll get to that in a second. In other words, we have these things in all of our families called generational curses and generational blessings. Right? And they represent these dominating themes in families or storylines of everybody's family. What God is shouting to America right now is this. What storyline are we going to be a part of? The healing or the hurt, the blessing or the curse, what storyline are we going to be a part of? Explain to them what you're talking about. With I'll this. give you an example of this last story. You guys okay? All right. So um, Will talked about the, the, this legacy of secret prayer meetings, right? And he also talked about how it was illegal for slaves to learn how to read and write. Well, even after slavery ended, guess what? It still wasn't very popular for them to learn how to read and write. And so the legacy of secret meetings continued. So 1867, after the Civil War, after slavery has ended, you have former slaves trying to teach themselves how to read and write and their children how to read and write. Only they did it in secret many times because they feared that there would be consequences if they were caught. And so right there in, on the Lockett homestead, you have a case where a mother, former slave, she's trying to teach her young son, Robert, how to read and write in secret because they feared there would be consequences. And so in one night walks Lucy Lockett and she catches them red handed, catches them in the act. And so I like to look at it this way. Lucy had to make a decision in that moment. And is it going to be a story of blessing or curse. And so Lucy chose to change the storyline in that moment. Instead of consequences, she looks at the mother and says, no, what you've chosen to do is very wise. And then she takes up tutoring this young boy, Robert, in how to read and write. Now, we know that story in detail because it's in his autobiography. His name is Robert Russomoton. He went on to replace Booker T. Washington as president of Tuskegee Institute. And in 1922, he gave the dedication speech of the Lincoln Memorial. That's him right there. Look at that picture. It looks really good on there. Yeah, it does. That's, that's a, a photo of Robert. Um, I could sh point to you in the background. That's Abraham Lincoln's son attending the ceremony. 1922, he gives the dedication speech. 41 years later from that moment, Dr. King would stand on that spot and declare, I have a dream. And exactly 41 years after that, Will and I would meet on that exact same spot. So think about it. This happened to two guys who were led by dreams to the Lincoln Memorial on MIK Celebration Day for a prayer meeting. 
to the very spot where Dr. King said, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners could sit together at the table of brotherhood. So maybe the dream speech wasn't poetry. Maybe it was prophecy. Maybe there's a dream king called the King of Kings who had a prayer that his father is answering, saying, Father, I pray that we want so that your glory could come so that the world would believe. Maybe God hadn't forgotten about the prayers of your grandmother and your grandfathers, right. of, of our forefathers. And Jesus prays this powerful prayer. Father, I pray that they will be one. We've been focusing on unity, and that's great. We need unity through diversity. But Jesus prayed that we will be one, just as he and the Father are one. You know what that takes? It takes a miracle. But God's going to answer his son's prayer. Stand to your feet.